Hello, film freaks, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, uh, anyone who loves movies, really, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today, this is a very exciting one. Our guest is a gifted filmmaker and actress. Uh, her features include Senorita, Apparition, and the really fantastic Spirit Award-nominated Lingua Franca, which played at Venice and is currently streaming on Netflix, so you have no excuse not to watch it. She also recently directed an episode of the acclaimed limited series Under the Banner of Heaven, and her recent acting appearances include the Cesar Award-nominated Maria Schneider 1983, which played at this year's New York Film Festival and is super good, and the short film The Actress, which you can watch right this second on Mubi. Let's all say hello to Isabel Sandoval. Hello, Isabel. Hey, Jason. Hi, Mike. Hello. So good to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I wanted to talk to you since we came up with the idea for the show, but I really knew that we had to have you on when I saw this tweet from uh, early December oh. of 2022. Because if as people who are regular listeners know, I want to talk to our guests about their cinephile journey. I want to know, you know, if they're picking stuff from before they were born, how they got into old movies, da 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 da, da. And just as we were firming you up as a guest, as if on cue, you tweeted all of that information when you told us about your Criterion Closet. <laughs> oh. uh, I will embed this tweet on the website. Uh, growing up, where you picked up your first Fassbender, Hitchcock, and Kurosawa, where was your Criterion Closet, Isabel? My very first Criterion Closet was in the pirated DVD shacks of the Philippines. <laughs> because that's really the only way you could get hold of these movies. Yeah, You know, of all the places you think would sell these classics and you know works of world cinema it's pirated dvd vendors and you know like i'm maybe i'm aging myself but you know when these came out some of them are even in video cd I, i'm not sure if that's even a thing here in the u.s it? I've, I, it's, it was always a phantom thing okay. I heard about as like, sometimes the only way you could get some shit on like eBay was on a VCD. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even know if I could play that. Yeah. So maybe but, that yeah. was just an Asian thing, an Asian pirate thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and there's a beautiful picture here. Like this warmed my heart of, I mean, honestly, it reminded me of the first time I walked into Kim's video, uh, underground in New York, you know, seeing this just like packed shelves and you know so like when you when did you sort of discover that this that this um resource was available to you as a budding cinephile you know starting in the late 80s late 90s you know that was when these you know pirated dvd vendors um popped up mm -hmm. you know in the streets or in like malls they're like malls dedicated to like stalls and stalls of these vendors right Really, they sell more mainstream movies, especially sure. American movies. And then, you know, one day I just came across this DVD cover that had the title Beware of a Holy Whore. <laughs> I was like, wait, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and then, you know, right next to it is like Notorious and Ikiru and wow. you know, all that stuff. And I just, you know, was so interested because... I've never encountered any of these films before. I may have yeah. read um, about them, but never actually gotten hold of a physical copy 
legal or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when did you sort of, when did you know that you were going to be a filmmaker? Like, was this already kind of in your bones when you were making these discoveries? You know, when I was a kid, you know, I was just realizing that my, I guess, organic mode of creative expression was picturing in my mind, you know, not just, you know, images, but not just images, but moving images and mm. scenes that I would cut up and edit mentally to form a narrative. And I didn't really, you know, take that to mean until much later on that I wanted to become a filmmaker. Well, when you're that young, you don't realize that not everybody thinks like that. Yeah. Or that movies are like a thing that people make. Yes. <laughs> they just sort of exist. Yes. You know, it's not like a job you can go have when, <laughs> when you're sort of, right? And especially if, like all three of us, you're not growing up in New York or Los Angeles, you know? It's just like, oh, wait, I could just, this is a thing I can learn how to do and then go do. Yeah, and, you know, just discovering, you know, those international films, there's like a an element of something, you know, forbidden, like a secret garden that I'm exploring and discovering mm -hmm. on, and that would, I don't know, separate me from the unwashed, uncultured, <laughs> non-cinephile right. population. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, kind of stumbling into something obscure and esoteric. And Dangerous. Secret, exactly. So, yeah, so the, 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 uh, the bootleg element, I think, really does play into a lot of that as well. You're like, oh, I'm not supposed to have this. Well, let me have this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of regretted tweeting that because, like, are, you know, are the authorities going to come after me now? <laughs> I mean, well, I think this is one of the the sort of like, you know, Jason, you referenced Kim's already. And I think there's this sort of question of like, you know, the, a lot of the things that were bootleg that people were excited about at Kim's, people were excited about not because it was like two dollars cheaper than it was going to be at, you know, Best Buy. It was because you literally had no other way to get it. It didn't exist in the United States anywhere outside of that one fucking goofy building on St. Mark's, right? And like in finding out like where that one building was, that was really sort of, you know, so in in a way it's kind of like it's, I mean that I guess it's against the law, but like I don't think that's that's sort of letter of the law, not spirit. You know what I mean? <laughs> not spirit. Yeah, that's some bullshit. That's why I was so thrilled um when it came across and I you know, I don't know why I didn't, you know, do this much earlier, but you know, um, Alamo has this video rental. Oh yeah, thing. yeah, and that's yeah. last year I was able to borrow a DVD of um, the House of Mirth by Terrence Davies because for the longest time it was not available right. on streaming. Right. So I saw that there, um, and I also borrowed a DVD of the works of Kenneth Anger, which I've never seen before because I don't think they're streaming anywhere. I don't no no never oh god okay well then who was the first sort of filmmaker who you whose work you encountered who seemed to be speaking your language who seemed to be sort of whispering to you in a really specific way bergman i would have to say mm, okay. and i think he's you know his work his style continues to influence me and just kind of the heightened emotionality and also but the restraint mm -hmm. as well um persona is uh and i remember you know among the pirated dvd sellers you know there were a lot of bergman titles yeah <laughs> that's awesome it's handy when your muse has a very very deep well 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to we want to hear more about some of your some of your favorites. We're going to talk specifically about one year in which several of your 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 favorite filmmakers were were sort of doing their thing. So tell us what year you chose to talk about today and why you landed on this one in particular. I chose 1974. You know, it's such uh, a rich rich year of cinematic masterpieces. All right. Well, we're going to get into that top five in two seconds. Before we do, though, Mike's going to let us know what was going on um, outside of the bootleg DVD shops in the year of 1974 or whatever their counterpart would have been. Here's headlines. Good evening. President Nixon reportedly will announce his resignation tonight. And Vice President Ford will become the nation's 38th president tomorrow. That word comes unofficially from aides and associates of both men, but not from the two men themselves. And the swiftly moving events of this busy day in Washington tend to confirm it. The big news of the year was the resignation of Richard Nixon on the back of the Watergate scandal. Yes, feel free to applaud that. USA! 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 Which was honestly a pretty small cherry on top of a big Sunday full of terrible Mm -hmm. shit, including countless... Dead people in Southeast yep. Asia, letting Henry Kissinger act like Bismarck, yep. terrible police and drug policy domestically, Garbage. constant appeasement of J. Edgar Hoover oh, yeah. for most Fuck of it, guy. really, yeah. most of Nixon's run. Uh, he let James Angleton extend the Cold War by 25 Fuck years. Up. Just yeah. a lot of terrible, terrible policies that were sort of sitting on 1974. And he left, but he left a... a he left a lot to deal with. I'm, I'm going to, you know, Mike, I try not to get political here. On the show. <laughs> yeah, we... I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm gonna, I, and if and if I get canceled for it, so be it. Richard Nixon, shitty president. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I bleed red, white yeah. and blue. You know, I am loath to critique this great land of ours. I don't think he was very good at the job. That's OK. OK, no. It, it, Send me your hate mail. It's fine. Go ahead. Man. Yeah, bad person overall. Uh, in February, the crew of Skylab 4 came home after a record 84 days not being on planet Earth, okay. uh, which at that point was the longest that people had stayed alive right. without being on planet Earth. Look up some pictures of Skylab if you've never seen it. It's super cool. It does not look like 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> uh, Stanley Kubrick was fucking lying. <laughs> a Took liar, some liberties, liar. did he? <laughs> yeah, it's cool, though. Uh, 1974 was the start of the Chipko movement in India, which uh, literally means tree-hugging movement. It was founded and mostly led by uh, poor women who started out holding hands around trees so loggers couldn't cut them down. Uh, And they are, it's, I don't know, it's a very inspiring thing to learn about. Now they do something most of us might not be familiar with, something called afforestation. Have you ever even fucking heard of that? I have not. Me either. <laughs> That's when you plant a forest where there wasn't one. Yay. I've only ever heard of deforestation. Hats off to afforestation. Then later the same year, also in India, they detonated their first atomic bomb. So that okay. Under a project called Smiling Buddha. And like, I don't want to tell you about your own culture, <laughs> but that has a very like Jesus in a MAGA hat with an M16 vibe, if you ask me. <laughs> Maybe there's something I don't understand, but all right. Uh, on on March 29th, the Terracotta Army of Qin Shi Huang is discovered in Xi'an, China. Uh, maybe the all-time best burial chamber, right? It's the one where like they've got all these full-size clay statues of dudes and horses and chariots and like a whole ass. Oh, this dude was buried with an entire army oh, of terracotta. 
All right. Like, so they're not like, you know, like they didn't actually mummify. It's completely badass. For my money, best burial chamber. Mike, I've not made an official will yet, but if I don't get around to it, consider this my request for my burial is uh, to be buried on a horse, clay horse with (laughs) And, And you and me next to each other in microphones. Two hundred thousand people took to the streets, strewing red carnations and dancing with the troops. A blaring chorus of car horns clashed with the chant, a united people will never be defeated. Censorship was at an end, freedom of speech restored, elections promised, and most important of all, the end of Portugal's colonial wars in Africa seemed at last to be an attainable goal. In April was the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, in which they chucked 41 years of dictatorship and slowly formed a democracy. We always like to celebrate when shitty fascists get the boot. So shout out to the 1974 Carnation Revolution. In September, Emperor Haile Selassie was deposed in Ethiopia, but not in the hearts of Rastafari worldwide. Uh, The Rubik's Cube was invented, and I think it's fair to say that both the initial interest and the staying power surprised everyone, including the dude who made it up. It's the shame of my childhood. I'm an 80s child and I could not fucking beat the Rubik's Cube. I could not do it. Literally never once. I could not do it. Like, I did you ever do, did, Mike, did you ever get so desperate that you did the move where you started peeling them off like when nobody was looking and you were just like, <laughs> I'm going to peel these off and then put them on. There. I never had that much patience, bro. I chucked that shit long before right. I started just, peeling Heads stickers. up, it doesn't work. It does not work. They are not designed to be taken off and reapplied. Isabel, did you uh, ever ever try to fuck with a Rubik's Cube? God, I, no. <laughs> Good. Should I? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's extremely frustrating. <laughs> well, now there's like a thousand YouTube videos that'll show you how to do it in under a minute. So, like, there's cheat codes that we didn't have. We didn't have YouTube in my when day. We, we had to learn things. <laughs> Uphill in the yeah. snow with you with Rubik's cubes, we couldn't finish. <laughs> the Arecibo message—I never know how to pronounce that, but that's how I say it. The Arecibo message was sent to Globular Cluster Miser Thirteen, which is an interstellar radio message containing information about humanity and the Earth. Oh. Uh, so tempting fate with that shit, in my opinion. <laughs> but the message will arrive uh, around the year twenty-seven thousand. So I don't have high hopes. It'll probably yeah. be fine for yeah. me. All right. All right. Yeah. A lot of people were born in 1974, like a lot of people generally, yes. but a lot of people you may have heard Great. of. Uh, Katie Porter, Congress Lady Katie with the whiteboard, uh, currently running for Diane Feinstein's Senate seat. So that would be a dramatic upgrade. Let's go, Katie. Mel C, a.k.a. Sporty Spice, and Vicky B, a.k.a. Posh Spice, uh, both born in 1974. <laughs> Isabel, who's your favorite Spice Girl? Um, Scary Spice. Ah, good pick. <laughs> also, I love... Mel B, Sporty Spice, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I <laughs> Mel C, me. yeah. I've always, I've always been a Ginger Spice man myself. Mike? Oh, yeah, scary, dude. All, 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 right, all day fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Record producer and rapper Jay Dilla, as well as Big L, RIP to both of those beautiful men. Right. Those are like your favorite rapper's favorite rapper type of guys. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a crazy list of actors that were born uh, in 74. Feruza Balk, Franca Potenta, Michael Uh, Shannon. How's that for Dream blunt rotation right there. That's that's an evening in. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) Marshala Ali, Eva Mendez, Jenna Fisher, Allison Hannigan, Christian Bale, Penelope Cruz, Catherine Hahn, Hilary Swank, Amy Adams, DiCaprio. Like, what I'm saying is like, we watch a lot of 48-year-olds do do things. I never had a put like that. Yeah, and on the other end of the industry, Jenna Jameson, also born in 74. All right, well, there we go. (laughs) 
toss-up to find out which way they're going to kick in this the supreme moment. Netherlands versus Deutschland in the World Cup final 1974. There was a World Cup. It was held in West Mike. Germany. And it was won by the German national team, and they're still quite proud of it. Yeah, I'm sure they are. This was also the first year that the current World Cup trophy was given out after they decided Brazil just permanently fucking owned the first one. So, <laughs> okay. Very even fight. Ali, a sneaky right hand. Another sneaky right hand. This time he works over the shoulder of Foreman. But the main sports story uh, of 1974 was the Rumble in the Jungle, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Ali, Ali, It's easy to look back at it now and sort of think it was a foregone conclusion because Ali's the greatest of all time and George Foreman taught your dad how to make salmon steaks <laughs> on his counter after the divorce. But uh, at the time, it really was, it was a big deal. And those guys were at the top of their game. And there are several movies about it. And you should watch When We Were Kings is like, is not exaggeration, like top five all time documentary for me. Like, especially yeah. Yeah, seeing real. it in college when I, I, first of all, I didn't give a shit about boxing. I knew nothing about Muhammad Ali. Uh, and not knowing the outcome of that fight. Like, if you don't know who yes. won the Rumble in the Jungle and you watch When We Were Kings, it is like a fucking nail-biter. God, that movie rules. That's the funnest uh, thing about watching sports movies with Jason. I have no he idea. Has no idea how no they're going to turn out. Even if None. they happened 30, 40 years ago, he has None. no idea where they're no going idea. and is, like, utterly shocked. Well, when We Were Kings is just about the Rumble in the Jungle. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And there's a beautiful Criterion Blu-ray available. Um, and also, um, Spike Lee and Norman Mailer and George Plimpton doing contemporary commentary on that fight is like <laughs> so good. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So that's, uh, we'll close that's headlines. close headlines with a plug for a movie as is, <laughs> as is our way. And now, uh, we're going to take a look at, uh, Isabel has, has been kind enough to rank the films in order of preference from five to one. So let's do a top five. All right, so Isabel Sandoval, what is your number five movie of the year 1974? My number five movie of the year 1974 is notable for a few things. It's probably the only film of my top five that would not be made <laughs> in this day and age. Yes, that seems safe to say, yes. <laughs> Second, um, it's the one film that very cheekily tells you all about the donkey who grazes in the perfumed grass of the field. <laughs> and pomegranates and spends the night in the hotel with the good food. Once yeah. you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's also the one that's not about misery or paranoia <laughs> or cynicism. Well, he's in. Alienation in my top five. Uh, it's Arabian Nights by Pasolini. Alberto Grimaldi presents Arabian Nights. Magically, in all his perversity and exoticism, master filmmaker Pierre Paolo Pasolini brings to the screen the legendary tales of a thousand and one nights. Which is still the third film in his trilogy of life and his penultimate film right before Salo. Yeah. 
Yeah. So where, so I guess, first of all, that, that I want to know, like where, when did you see this in relation to the rest of his films as you were exploring his filmography? I actually saw this um, just last year. Um, oh, wow. You know, okay. I, I've, I've seen uh, Decameron and sure. Canterbury Tales before, but then um, on one of the Criterion sales, the <laughs> 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 Noble Criterion sales, I, I bought the Trilogy of Life. Yeah. Because, you know, otherwise, I don't think, you know, this is it widely circulated, you know, yeah. certainly not on streaming, even in Criterion Channel. So yeah. when I really watch the trilogy, it's just so fascinating how, and especially in Arabian Nights, it's one of the very rare portraits that we have of the Middle East. Mm. It's not about how it's politically fraught, you know, kind of a very Western, you know, this is uh, a geopolitically problematic um, right territory but it's one about you know just an unabashed and you know a brazen celebration of beauty and youth and sexuality you know um some people might call it like a very debased (laughs) (laughs) it's Pasolini come on what do you want here (laughs) but you know there's like it's rompy it's picaresque and there's you know, its attitude towards um, sex, sexual desire, and sexuality is something I might, and this might feel like, you know, con- contradiction, kind of virginal mm. in a way. Mm. You know? That's and, really well said, yeah. yeah. It's very, very observational yeah. and, and not very participatory. Yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah. yeah, it's just... It's joy and exuberance is infectious. You know, I yeah. I enjoyed watching it. Um, yes. <laughs> knowing that, you know, and within that particular context, what they were doing was culturally. <laughs> it's a little dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not necessarily endorsing yes. what they were doing. But, you know, there's just... Um, something that felt very liberated and non-judgmental yeah um about it you know certainly free of a very puritanical and um very uptight (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um yeah and i think i mean i can understand how certain critics and detractors might accuse it of you know of, of being very orientalistic or exoticizing mm. that culture, but what that, what it does have is a very specific, you know, point of view and yes. outlook. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if we can rely on our pal Pasolini to do one thing, it's to to make the horniest possible version of whatever whatever story he's going to tell, and uh, he certainly did that. You're right; it's a gorgeous movie. Isn't it the most faithful? film translation of the source material Probably so yeah as far as i know i've never seen a sexy arabian nights before <laughs> and, but the but it's that stuff it's from the source yeah. material it's not it's just sort of like the books that most people don't film right, right. i mean it's not only those right. right but like the ones that that stand out yeah <laughs> right the ones that were kind of like whoa the ones that my wife was like there are kids in this room right now are you really watching this <laughs> yes Isabel, what is your number four movie of 1974? I believe I chose The Godfather Part Two. 
Don Vito Corleone and his son Michael. Both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Both had killed as an act of vengeance. Both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world. Is it true that in the year 1950, you devised the murder of the heads of the so-called five families in New York? It's a complete falsehood. They would take any measures. I mean, you've won. You want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. Just my enemies. Hey, hey, hey. I think I've heard of this one, Mike. I, yeah, you helped me track. You helped me track this one down for the show. Um, yeah, I had a I had a VHS. I, I sent that over. Yeah, I feel like this choice might be very film bro. I mean, it's like seeing Scorsese or Tarantino. Isabel, it's okay to come on and let the film bro flag fly just for one or two. It's fine. But yeah, I was just you know dazzled, especially by the Don Vito, you know, part yeah. of it. Of course, the film itself is epic and sweeping but um yeah the de niro as uh vito corleone kind of origin story right you know narrative is just felt very dickensian to me how it was shot it's the tone is not your now kind of calcified and very common like dark and ominous and gritty gangster but there was a sense of you know like wonderment and enchantment and romanticism and nostalgia it is it's so easy to think of the two of those as you know the contrasts that are happening in terms of narrative and chronology and things like that but you're really right that that's like that the the tones of those sections are so different and that there is that sort of wonderful nostalgic you know almost kind of golden glow to the to the young Vito stuff and then but the 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 aging Michael stuff is so cold and nasty and hard and it's and it's and then, of course, you know, not the first person to say this by a long shot, but, you know, that's kind of the story of America, you know, that like it's sort of the way that we were losing our souls in the 70s. And the fact that this came out, you know, was being made at the same time as Watergate is, I'm sure, not a coincidence, um, especially in the the sort of Watergate like sections of that. You know, it's also fascinating how, you know, like this is the year that Nixon resigned and, you know, part of. You know, a subplot in Godfather Part Two is about a dictator being overthrown. You know, in Cuba. Yes. Oh wow. Yes, <laughs> that's true too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, this. But this is indeed a very, a very Nixonian um, Michael Corleone. In movie culture, is there any single movie that has been watched more mm. by more people and sort of commented on? Like, I feel like this is one of those things where, like, okay, if you don't like the fucking Beatles, fine. <laughs> but they've been through every possible filter, right. and the shit passed. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's. There's a reason why people still listen yep. to it. It's good movie. <laughs> I mean, it's really like there's a reason why it's on everybody's <laughs> list. There's a reason why it comes up. I may just add, it doesn't hurt that De Niro is at his hottest. Holy the- shit. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Like he is. You know, I have the hots for Vito here. <laughs> He's very he is and especially like <clears throat> at the very end. I'm sorry, I know we're not supposed to like to to be like aroused by bloodshed but when he when he goes back and gets back at the dawn 
the yeah. like God. the scene with the and this is for oh fuck that shit is sexy i don't give a yeah. shit i mean i wish i was the dog <laughs> <laughs> all right number three isabel on your 1974 list what's it gonna be i believe i said chantal ackerman mm-hmm. yeah which film je do allow the troisième jour je les ai mis dans le couloir le quatrième je me suis couché sur le matelas vide la pièce est grande je trouve the now very controversial Ackerman who has yes talked. yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you for leaving it there um no I, I almost feel like we should like we should like asterisk this by the fact that, like we've been talking to Isabelle about doing the show for so long we got this list this top five before the sight and sound list came out and before Ackerman became the cause celeb that she has become <laughs> in in the aforementioned film bro circles um, of the world. Uh, but so so this is the year before the, the, the yeah. number one movie on the, on the sight and sound list. Um, so what so so for those who are now aware of her or interested in her or or want to explore the filmography in greater depth, a deep cut such as this, what what is it about this particular film that 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 is so striking to you? Um, you know, this is really my first and alongside uh Jean Delman, you know, my first exposure to durational cinema. And mm. now just, you know, staying with a character and, you know, observing them naturalistically and almost in long uninterrupted shots, you know, mm -hmm. just being and thinking freely. Um, and the filmmaker's decision, you know, to focus on that and validate that mm -hmm. as a subject of cinema, um, mm -hmm. especially female protagonists and just, you know, being liberated from conventional narrative and dramatic structure um, right. and saying that, okay, this is what I consider art and what I cons consider cinema. And which, you know, of course, this is her first feature film that explored that and that really very impressively just a year later, mm -hmm. I guess, reached its, I guess, grandest and mo most, um, successful interpretation and execution with John Delman, you know, and yeah. she was only what, 23, 24 when she made this? Something infuriating well, like that. Yes. Paul Schrader <laughs> in that age was just writing about Brisson. Yes. <laughs> I love Paul Schrader, but <laughs> remember he was one of the ones yes. who was very critical about John Delman yes. being yes, you know, on the top of the Titan Sound list. Oh God. Um, yeah, I mean, that's this one. This is one of the ones on your list that I had not seen before. Um, and uh, what I and it just it gave me a feeling that it's just like impossible to overstate the value of in our current film climate, which is just on a on a really basic level from scene to scene. I didn't know where we were going and to to feel that is is incredibly emotional for me but also like to anybody can make a movie that's that where that, that's uncertain or where you don't know where it's going or that sort of yeah. thing when you are a filmmaker who can make who can who can forge that kind of a 
non-narrative path mm -hmm. without making the viewer feel alienated, lost, concerned. Like I was never worried about where she was taking me. Yeah. I just didn't know where it was. And like the confidence that she has as a filmmaker that early on mm -hmm. is just astonishing. It really is. Yeah. And also just taking scenes, especially, you know, the second and third parts mm -hmm. that would have been, you know, on the surface or on paper, um, sexual scenes, but mm -hmm. they don't feel titillating. <laughs> no. Early, but they at least in my experience and yeah. you know it kind of just compounded the feeling of alienation disconnection displacement you know that yeah. she was initially feeling um or her character was initially feeling the restlessness right. when she was in her apartment yeah for days no. and weeks, you know just writing letters and like eating spoonfuls of sugar <laughs> um you know and these yeah. are the kinds of cinematic texts that are open and allow for a multiplicity of interpretation, you know, depending on who's watching it and yeah. what that viewer is able to bring to it, both um, emotionally and, and intellectually. There's this look that sometimes women will get when they're just like tired of being around dudes, <laughs> <laughs> like just been around dudes enough today yeah. and better than any movie I've ever seen this movie allowed me to experience that <laughs> feeling of like peace and solitude and mm -hmm. yes, loneliness, but also some peace inside that, that solitude and that loneliness. Yeah. And then you're just like with this dude who's just, just being such a dude for just no fucking reason. You know just what I mean? There's no reason to be like that much of a dude. And you just sort of reach a point and like, she gets that look, she yeah. gets the look yeah. where she's like sort of had enough being around dudes. And I recognize that look, but had never sort of taken the journey yeah. before had always just sort of been like, Oh damn, that's the look. All right. Well, we're about to wrap this up, you know, but that this movie took me on that journey. I fucking love yeah. going on it. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of of uh, films about very complicated women, um, Isabel, let's talk about your number two pick for 1974. What is that incredible? My film? number two film of 1974 is A Woman Under the Influence by John yes. Cassavetes. Mabel's not crazy. She's unusual. Tell me what you want me to be, how you want me to be. I can be that. I can be anything. You tell me, Mabel. Mabel's a delicate, sensitive woman. And the reason I'm worried is that uh, you've been acting a little strange. Uh, uh, I, I wonder if you've been aware of that. Starring the great, the unparalleled, the the unequaled Jenna Rollins. Yeah, and which I, you know, would argue is actually the, you know, performance of the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's Jenna Rollins and a woman under the influence. And I feel like for the first half, it would be um, Falconetti and, um, and Joan of Arc by Dreyer. Um, yeah, such a grueling, heightened, operatic, but also hyper-realistic and visceral and raw performance and portrait, you know, by Cassavetes of 
of a woman, you know, who's struggling, but also of a of a relationship um, and a family um, who is going through it as well. Yes. And you know how yes. it doesn't feel like a scripted narrative. It feels like a documentary. And I think that's where a lot of its power comes from. It is a kind of, it is a, a truth in some sense um, from Casabetes, you know. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's a very particular and specific um, in that, you know, it's a picture of this Italian American family with their own, you know, rituals and traditions and mores and just presenting that without softening or explain. It just it just is. It's one of those movies that it's just wow, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that I that I do wonder about about this movie is that, like, could, and this is not this is neither a a, a knock on her or or gassing him up. Could anyone but John Cassavetes gotten a performance that raw and vulnerable out of of General? It's like I I like it's so raw. It's mm-hmm. such an open wound of a performance that it almost feels like you can only go there with your partner on the other side of that camera from you, like feeling that sort of trusted and protected the way that, that as I understand their collaboration worked. Um, I, I, it's, I mean, that is a, it's a real, it's a real um, model for sort of a creative collaboration in, in my opinion. And Peter Falk is no slouch too. <laughs> oh my God. Here's what's great about this movie too, is that like Peter Falk, I feel like Peter Falk is kind of having a moment in, in culture again, because I think a lot of people like discovered Columbo during lockdown. Like I, a lot of people I know were binging that show. Now we've got poker face coming out, which is sort of, you know, a clear debt to it and so forth. It's so easy to think of Peter Falk as just Columbo or as that sort of Columbo type of comic character that he played so well that it's astonishing to watch what he's doing as a dramatic actor in this film. Like it's, it's a mind blower. You're right. And it's a different example of a durational cinema. Um, certain degree. Mm, Yes. Just stays with these characters like that extended, you know, like surprise, um, meal Mm -hmm. breakfast and just how a lot of you know tension um and awkwardness and also tenderness and affection reveal themselves you know just by staying in the characters and their interactions with each other where each line of dialogue each pause each breath really counts and matters in the bigger picture that Casabetes is trying to it's an amazing movie. All right. Well, a movie would have to be like a fucking all-timer to be number one on a list <laughs> where a woman under the influence is number two. So, Isabel, what what is the number one movie on your 1974? You sound like you object to my number one choice. 
I don't at all. I don't at all. I'm with you on it. I'm totally with you um, on it. But I chose this as my number one, I think, to also reclaim its reputation. Um, the Parallax mm. View by Alan Pakula. Uh, yes, Lee, how are you? Senator Carroll, just fine, thank you. Welcome to our city. <laughs> Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed, and whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. The second in uh, in his paranoia trilogy that start started with Clute. I think like good movie three years prior, um, and concludes with yeah. all the presidents. Mm-hmm. Three years later. Yeah, and concludes with. With all the president's men, I don't want to give anything away. Uh, oh no, this is there's no way to not be giving anything away. Um, we will be covering all all three of the films in that trilogy make their way onto lists on this show that we that either have been recorded or will be recorded. It's an incredible run. Like when you talk about the great sort of runs of work, like that's when you think about 70s cinema, when we sort of throw around the 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 ideas that made it great, like so many of them are present in those three films. What is it about him that 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 speaks to you so clearly as a filmmaker? Uh, from one filmmaker sort of talking to another. Yeah, I think what I really, you know, connected to and what really resonated with me about Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy is, yeah, that that darkness, that cynicism, that tension, um, you know, and that mm-hmm. paranoia, I think, and that mm-hmm. is the feeling that suffuses um, the atmosphere of Lingo Franca. To a certain extent, I mean, mm-hmm. these are stories that take place, you know, almost 50 years apart. But, you know, I was making Lingo Franca. At first, it was a straightforward, like, romantic drama. But that was right before Trump got elected. And when he got elected, yeah. you know, I feel like a lot of, like, a lot of immigrants, people of color, I was plunged into this just state of anxiety about what's going to happen. I mean, I had... yeah. I got my green card literally a month before I got elected. But he, oh you know, in his first month, he had this, you know, ban, yeah. you know, of several Middle Eastern yeah. countries. And even though you had a green card, you could still, you know, yeah. be refused entry back to the United States. And so for, you know, six months, I was kind of paralyzed. I didn't know what, how to whether to continue making Lingo Franca, especially coming from a country that had a dictator, you know, back in the day. Right. And <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So when yeah. I finally, yeah. you know, came around and decided to continue making it, that was when that romance became tinged with, you know, paranoia and anxiety and tension. That became the mood mm-hmm. um, of Lingo Franca. Um, and yeah, you know, I made Senorita my very first film o- over 10 years ago now. And what inspired me, me to make it was actually seeing Clute for the very first time. Yeah. And um, kind of the arc of the character that I play in Senorita is similar to, it's literally kind of a ripoff of Jane Paul. 
Yes, we eat animals in Kloof. <laughs> a free. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? The, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> and it's funny because when the Parallax View, you know, first came out, it got mixed reviews. And actually, mm-hmm. the foremost conspiracy movie that came out that year was the other couple of film conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was only, I think, in recent years that the stature of the Parallax View, you know, has yeah. risen again. It's been reappraised as a as a true classic of the genre and also a very much a film of um, the cultural zeitgeist at that time, you know. It really captured the yeah, spirit yeah. of the time. I do want to, before we move on, I, I I do have a question. I always like to pick a filmmaker's brain because this is not an area that I'm as familiar with. You had two films in your top five then that were shot by Gordon Willis, who who he also shot Godfather 2 and shot the other two films in the, the Paranoia trilogy. When people talk about him, you know, he's he's one of the sort of go-to references among a certain kind of cinephile for the 70s. But when you ask why he was special, all a lot of us could do is say, well, it was really dark. But like, you know, we're just talking <laughs> about like lighting temperatures, you know what I mean? But like, what is it as as a filmmaker, what was he doing as a cinematographer that was so unique and so specific and made that work so effective. I mean, the, the feeling that I got from his work, particularly from the Paranoia trilogy, from the way he lit and shot things, you know, and framed things, was the claustrophobia, you know, and that mm-hmm. also that voyeuristic quality um, that mm-hmm. really worked well. Because I think I talk a lot about, you know, being queen of central cinema initially as a joke. But, you know, I think... <laughs> What draws me a lot as well thematically are, you know, themes of darkness about kind of the transition from good into evil, how seemingly initially, you know, naive and wide-eyed and optimistic characters become disillusioned. Um, And that's really the theme of my first film, for instance, Mm. um, Senorita. And also, I mean, they're very noirish. I think that there is a comparison you made to Lingua Franca here, which is that you can feel the fourth wall in his movies. Mm. You can feel the room. You can mm. feel the yeah. things that are behind you. Yeah. You know, and, and Parallax View is one of those where, like, you know, you sort of feel like you should be looking over your shoulder. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I mean, you keep referring yeah. to it as the Paranoia Trilogy, yeah, right? Yeah, and, yeah. like, the, the cinematography actually has that. <laughs> you know where you can feel the wall or the the lack of a wall you can feel the headlights behind you you can feel in a way that i just not yeah. very many people um, would pull off you know even that opening sequence of assassination is just very very well shot and how we you know like especially that particular moment where the politician gets shot and it's from you know from the back and we have these foreground characters i think um was warren Beatty one of them or and we just see um, the senator or the, the congressman shot, you know, behind the glass. Yeah, it's not like elegantly framed. It's not. It's not artsy. It's. It really feels like an accident captured in in sort of off to the side of that frame. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's. I think. Yeah, um, and it's those shots that cut through the artifice of, of fiction film and make it feel somehow documentary like and really 
creates or simulates the realism. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. All right. Isabel, this is a fantastic top five. Um, thank you for bringing it to us. And uh, with, with, with these high minded artistic uh ideas in mind let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money simultaneously here's awards and box office sell out with me oh yeah sell out with me tonight the Oscars were dominated. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor to De Niro, and Best Adapted Screenplay for The Godfather Part Two. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they. I feel like a lot of times on this show we're like, when the Oscars shit the bed, and this year they didn't. <laughs> they they thankfully didn't. Um, what else did they give some trophies to, Mike? Well, and another deserving performance: Best Actress to Ellen Burstyn for Alice doesn't live here anymore. Wow, that's that's yeah. <laughs> Isabel is nodding. How do you how do you feel about um, Well, it should have gone to general. I, I mean, hard to argue, right? But stiff competition, <laughs> at least. <laughs> yes. yeah. Best actor to Art Carney, also Golden Globe for best actor in a comedy musical went to Harry and Tonto. OK, let's he They shit the bat on this yeah. one. Like, I love Art Carney. <laughs> I love Art Carney. And um, and Harry and Tonto is is a really lovely movie, um, but of those five, because this is one that I get angry about sometimes. Okay, here were the nominees for Best Actor: Al Pacino in Godfather Two, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express, and they gave it to Art Carney for. for- Was it one of those like overdue awards? Like. Uh, I mean, he was, he did a lot of good TV. It was, it wasn't like Pacino getting his percent of a woman or something. It's like everybody liked Art Carney, but he's Ed Norton. Okay. I'm sorry. Harry and Tonto is a perfectly lovely little Paul Mazursky movie. And there's just no way he should have won that award. That's all. I Best supporting actress went to Ingrid Bergman for murder on the Orient Express. She's very good, but that is, that is the career um, culmination award you were talking about. I love murder <laughs> on the Orient Express, but like, uh, it's, you know, that's a fine performance or whatever. Best Original Screenplay, also Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama, went to Jack. He doesn't even need a last name. Chinatown. A loaded proposition, I know, to discuss a Polanski picture, Isabel, but uh, how do you feel about Chinatown? I mean, it is a masterpiece. Actually, I just revisited recently, and I also um, read the Sam Wasson book. Uh, Oh, it's so good. That book book is great. That's why I was thinking, like, The Godfather Part Two like was shot in a studio because I read that they were shooting Godfather <laughs> in a soundstage right yeah. next to Chinatown almost at the yeah, same time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, I think I'm just in a very noir kind of like, and I'm, I'm in my noir phase in you know, these past yeah. years because I want to make my own noir. I feel like oh. I've been building towards, you know, making a noir film in my last three films. I'm ready. I'm going to do ready. that. You know, I'm going to go back to the Philippines and shoot yeah. my own I don't know, LA Confidential or In the Lonely Place or Chinatown. Yes. Even. Yes. <laughs> two, two, please. Or a mob drama. Two, two tickets, please, Bad for movie. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Best foreign language film went to Amarcord. That's a good movie. That's a that's a fine motion picture, Fellini, Fellini's Amacord. Uh, I'm taking another bold stance. He made good movies. Uh, other big winners that year, uh, Golden Globe for Best Picture Comedy Musical went to The Longest Yard. Burt Reynolds. Fun. Bert, fun, yeah, yeah. Bert, kind of talk about people kind of at their hobbies. Never seen there. it. That's a but the new one was with Adam Sandler. Yes, right? yeah. I'm not telling. Let's not let's not go crazy. But the original, quite quite enjoyable. 
Uh, Golden Globe for Best Actress Drama went where it should have gone. Gina Rollins for Women of the Influence. Again, sometimes the Golden Globes get it right. Uh, Golden Globe for Best Actress Comedy Musical went to Raquel Welch for The Three Musketeers. Is that like a... Is that that title ironic or is it like... What, The Three Musketeers? Yeah. It's Richard Lester's two-part adaptation of alexandra Lord Dumas. Three, no it's a blast mike it is a okay th- those movies are a tr- isabel you've seen these no but every time you know someone says alexandra dumas they always think of the shawshank redemption, shawshank redemption. <laughs> <laughs> i just stopped myself from saying it so thank you thank you yeah. yeah yeah golden globe for best supporting actor went to fred astaire for the towering inferno that again, um, a a career culmination one, but there was very serious talk at the Oscars because he was up for he was nominated for supporting actor at the Oscars. A lot of people thought that like the three Godfather two dudes would like cancel each other out, and the the Fred Astaire would be the sentimental <laughs> favorite. It was like a big surprise wow. when De Niro won that because because everyone thought that Astaire wow. won the sentimental prize for that. Yep. Uh, Golden Globe for best supporting actress went to Karen Black for The Great Gatsby. Not a great movie, but Karen Black. Anytime you guys want to give Karen Black an, an award is fine with me. Golden Globe for best foreign film, Scenes from a Marriage. Oh, okay. Holy shit. <laughs> like, if these were the choices for foreign film, was like, well, do we give it to Armacord or, or Scenes from a Marriage? That's a pretty good year for international cinema. I so I guess this year it's what? <laughs> Argentina or All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, we're sort of sort of crumbling to our to to dust in the face of 74 what else mike uh palm d'or at the con film festival uh went to the conversation this like this still blows my mind that that coppola put out two of like the best movies of the 70s just like in the same year like it wasn't shit right. just put them both out how do you feel about the conversation love especially the opening sequence um, oh god yes love the jazzy score um of course love um Gene Hackman. Hackman in it. is so is so good and and at, at doing nothing in that movie or seeming like he's doing nothing. <laughs> like that's the trick. That's the magic trick. And I think that film really revolutionized sound design. You know. Yeah, big time merch, baby. Yeah, well, Walter Merch. Well, that's one of those stories that, like, if for some reason you're listening to this and you're like a beginning film kid, like you're just sort of like learning about all this stuff. Like, holy shit, do you have a feast in front of you when you find out about this guy? You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the BAFTA for Best Picture went to Lacombe Luzon. Lacombe See, we're trying to... St- you got a much better French pronunciation than we do. Yeah. We're over here, these two Kansas boys trying to say these French titles. All right. What, uh... What, now, let's, uh... Let's take a look at a decidedly mixed bag of a box office top ten. Top ten. Number ten, Murder on the Orient Express. Good movie, Lumet. Lumet. Top ten. Wild. Number nine, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams from <laughs> Sun Classic, baby. Yes. Do you love the Sun Classic movies? <laughs> Their shit is so wild. How many times, like some random fucking Sun Classics pictures four wall thing ended up in the top ten? The Life and Times of Grizzly <laughs> Adams. Uh, right, and I, when I say I love them, I don't mean to watch them. No. I mean to like know of their yeah. existence oh, and the, the part they played in the world. You know, like not to actually sit and watch. Are these films <laughs> even still streaming anywhere? Because of no, they're impo- like yeah, you have to like be willing to like buy like an old you know DVD yeah. or VHS from eBay or something. But yeah, Life and Times of Grizzly Adams outgrossed the successful 
Sydney Lumet all-star adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> Number eight was uh, Longest Yard. Pretty good. The one where the star takes his shirt off, not yep. one, not the one where he most certainly doesn't. Yep. Number seven was Airport 1975. Not good. Bad, bad movie. Like um, the airport movies in general, like very much of of their era and no other era. And on the the quality pendulum swing, number six was Godfather Part Two. Yeah. Number five, Trial of Billy Jack. Yeah, another another highly anticipated sequel. <laughs> Uh, those Billy Jack movies, man. We'll t- one day, Mike, we're just going to do a whole ass podcast about the <laughs> Billy Jack movies because they are fu- the story is fucking mind blowing. But all I all you got to know now is that the trial of Billy Jack outgrows Godfather, too. OK, carry on. There you go. Uh, number four was Earthquake. Uh, I've I've not seen Earthquake. Is- Isabel, have you seen uh, Earthquake? I have not. It was in Sensoround Sound. I know that. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Uh make sure you get a chair that you can shake around yep. in. Number three. This is this is I think this is my favorite. This is pretty cool. I think this is my favorite three three to two swap. <laughs> Maybe in all of movie history. Number three is Young Frankenstein. Number two is Blazing Saddles. Like that's a fucking movie year. Mel was fucking killed. Like both Mel and Francis. All time great movies, two of them in the same year. Like neither of them would ever top 1974 again. But I love both of those movies. Um, I don't know, Isabel. Where do you land on these on these Mel Brooks comedies? Okay, I have a confession to make. I've never seen either of these. <gasps> oh, Ooh. yay! No, 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 no. Like the least we can do if 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 we watched. <laughs> you know, Pasolini's Arabian Nights and Ackerman's Jetudel yeah. on your recommendation okay. is now we <laughs> as the ugly Americans could say, well, in, in, in our swap is our cultural swap is that you should go watch Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. Okay, question, which is better? Which do you like better? Of those two? Oh, Frankenstein. Okay. Young Frankenstein easily. Easily. I mean, I love and I love mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles. I love Blazing Saddles. But what's great about Young Frankenstein is that like Blazing Saddles is yeah. still Mel Brooks just like being like a, a, a blackout sketch mm-hmm. vaudeville comedian. Basically, it looks like a Western, but it looks yeah. like like, you know, kind of a half ass in it. Young Frankenstein looks like a 30s universal okay. horror picture like he Got shot it. it in black and white the way that it's that it's the you know the compositions the framing all of that shit it, it looks like one of those movies and he even went to the trouble of getting the original props from yeah. frankenstein's lab from the james whale movies and he uses those in the in the picture yeah. So it's like that to me is the best kind of satire. The best kind of spoof is when it looks like semi indistinguishable from the real thing. God, I love Young Frankenstein. Oh, it's so yeah. Good. When you're when you when you wake up one morning and you're like, I just can't do a noir today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I'm just like I'm I'm just I'm too deep in noir right now. Yeah. And like I love it, and I'm gonna come back to it tomorrow. But just today's not noir day. Yeah. This is what you need Young to 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 refresh your palate. And be able to return. Would Criterion Channel ever program Mel Brooks, you think? They should. They should. <laughs> they should. They got any damn sense. I will also say this. Another person doing doing all-timer performances uh, or all-timer work in 1974, you got to keep in mind, Gene Hackman was in the conversation and his cameo as the blind beggar okay. in Young Frankenstein 
it's sure it's, it's it, like lest you ever wonder whether gene hackman had the comic chops his okay. one scene in young frankenstein mike what was what was the top gross not, not that we have any more time to talk about this but i actually prefer blazing saddles simply because uh and jason's dead right about every single thing he said about young frankenstein but blazing saddles has a, is a little bit more of a sort of 1974 commentary oh oh big there's, time there's more of a sort of like a social satire it was you know i mean you've got richard pryor in the you know in yeah. the writing room right yeah. it's like it is and and that to me the way that that he sort of set that in the like bullshit fictional Hollywood world that he likes to to portray mm -hmm. to me is just absolutely fucking genius. And, and in a way sort of it, it's an example of how you can take rich people's money and make something genuinely revolutionary. That's true. And like, you don't say, I don't say that about m many movies and especially <laughs> not comedies for fuck's sake, right. but like blazing saddles is one of those. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and number one, the much less interesting Tower Inferno. <laughs> Towering Inferno. <laughs> Isabel, people love wow. their disaster movies. They just did. They just the loved disaster them. movies were the superhero movies of the seventies. They were. <laughs> they a hundred percent were. They were the Marvel movies of the seventies. Yes, and that's how like that's 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 how the Sam Rockwells of their day made their paychecks, so they could keep making the weird movies. <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. 100%. All right. You, are you up for a lightning round? Sure. Hopefully I'm seeing. <laughs> you could do it. Any of these. You could do it. So, okay, Mike, uh, let's put five minutes on the big clock. And here we go. Ah, a little Fassbender picture. Ollie, fear eats the soul. Um, Very influential on Lingo Franca. As well, you know, immigrant love yeah. sport. Yeah, I could see that. Both very detached and restrained, but also quite yes. steering. Yeah, beautiful movie. Uh, also out in 1974, The Night Porter. Kinky, but also <laughs> Charlotte <laughs> Rampling, um, Eric Bogard. Uh, yeah, um, and it's another, you know, sexual on paper film that is a lot more psychologically um, tricky and slippery. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Vim Vendor's Alice in the Cities. Isolation, um, an unusual friendship. Love that film. I saw it in um, London for the first time last summer when I was stuck there oh, during wow. the hottest day ever recorded in London. <laughs> I'm staying inside. Yes, good call. Good call. Uh, little John Waters picture called Female Trouble came out in 1974. Okay, another confession I've never seen Female Trouble. Orson Welles' F for Fake came out in 1974. I'm probably one of those people that's not as fond of F for Fake. Um, and actually, you know, love the other side of the wind, which is, mm -hmm. you know, arguably, mm -hmm. I don't know if we could consider it as film mm -hmm. because it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Edited mm -hmm. by him, but I want to yeah revisit fake. I the, I I pitched an essay when that movie came out, and no one no one wanted to run my Orson Welles was a cuck <laughs> feature, and I'm frankly it's a good piece, and I got a lot <laughs> yeah. of I got a lot of evidence for it. Um, Robert Altman had two pictures in 1974: Thieves Like Us and California Split. Love California Split uh, so much. It's Elliot Gold, I think. Right. Who's the other guy? Yeah. Yes. 
Elliot Gould and George Siegel, baby. That's like only in the seventies do George Siegel and Elliot Gould lead your studio movie. Um, <laughs> the other one uh, I haven't seen. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, Sam Peckinpah's "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia." I have not seen that Peckinpah. You know what? It's actually a blind spot for me too. Sam Peckinpah. It's really, it's, it, that if you're gonna, that's a really good entry point for Sam Peckinpah. That's that's as that's as nasty as as his stuff gets. It's all it's all soft focused from there. I guess well maybe Straw Dogs would be the okay. Um, a, a gentleman by the name of Steven Spielberg made his uh, theatrical feature debut with a movie called The Sugarland Express. Oh my god, a, another movie that I haven't seen. Blood for Dracula, aka Andy Warhol's Dracula, was released in nineteen seventy. Not a fan of Warhol as a filmmaker. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> nobody is they're fucking faking and fine oh hold on mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know i i don't know if you guys had access to to to, to cinemax when you were growing up but um emmanuel was released in 1974 now i realize a lot of the parody dvd vendors you know did not, did not have a very extensive catalog <laughs> I no 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 no. I I don't even think I've seen Emmanuel. I just never resist the opportunity to note that the director of Emmanuel and several of its sequels recently passed. The man's name was Just Jakin. Like the guy who directed the quintessential skin flicks of the 70s. Actual born name was Just Jakin. But it does look like Just Jakin. I mean it really does. It really does. Look it like really looks Jackin. like when you Yes, Emmanuel's better than you think. Okay. They were trying to do some things. I, I can't believe I literally just opened it up to this page. Lena Wertmuller, The Seduction of Mimi, was released in 1974. Oh my God. You know, such an idiosyncratic, um, satirical, humorist um, filmmaker. I remember I'm not really starstruck by, you know, celebrities or actors or directors. I remember being at the Venice Film Festival in 2019 when Lingua Franca was there and she made an appearance and I was. Well, you know, um, Stepped Away is one of my favorite comedies as well. You know, if we can call it a comedy. Yes. Yes. And finally, again, just someone I always have to mention, the great Pam Greer in Foxy Brown was released in 1974. Was not out on pirated DVDs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's close it up. That's our lightning round. Thank you, Isabel. Um, we we touched on this briefly before before we we wrap up. I did want to talk a little bit about because these this is again the sort of the resource we don't typically have uh, when we have you know other egghead film critics on. But I was really struck. You know, I watched Lingua Franca after watching your top five, and really saw so like talk to us a little bit about sort of how these particular films influenced you in general, but that film in particular, because that's right now kind of the easiest one for people to see. You know, it's so fascinating because I, when I was making Lingua Franca, I was ready like years after I was first introduced to these films. Um, And I watched these films at a very formative phase in my cinephilia. And after a certain point, I just kind of forget about them, you know, and not consciously like think about them and admire them for years, but when I was making Lingo Franca, I was trying to make it as intuitively and just organically as possible what felt right to me in the moment. Um, Absolutely. And it's only after the fact, after I was in the editing room and cutting up, you know, the movie. Yeah. 
and started to show them to my friends like oh this moment reminds me of this and this <laughs> was to show that you know um whatever we've come to love and admired and have influenced us you know consciously kind of make their way very sneakily into the dna of our um creative I guess self and just that influence manifests themselves in a very unconscious and self-conscious and a natural way when we make our own work and um i'd like to think that i just did not you know i wasn't making a deliberate nod to these filmmakers in your works oh, but sure. that yeah. their influence on me and my work is indelible and undeniable and i'm forever grateful to yeah you know ackerman fassbinder um Coppola, Pakula, Gordon Willis for the work that they've made. I also watched it after watching The Five, and it really felt of a piece uh, in a way that this was something that, that Jason and I talked about in a way of, you know, anybody can sort of say like, oh, I was influenced in this or that. But it just, it really landed. Uh, the the movies really sort of felt, they, they made a lot of yeah. sense together. Um, um, very much a woman under the influence. I mean, I really found myself I found myself thinking about Jenna a lot when I was watching you. We've talked yeah. mostly about your filmmaking, but you know, it's also it's also a beautiful uh tender intuitive performance and extremely personal, extremely vulnerable, extremely open. And I found you know, how I guess I'm also how do you balance that? How do you like direct yourself in a in a in a role that's that and i had to show my left boob you know <laughs> um, yeah it's funny because i was just thinking about like it's one less person to direct because i know exactly what i want from mm. myself performance wise i know i mean I, did, I don't have a formal film education or you know i didn't study acting but i do know that the central performance or at least the main protagonist really sets the tone as well you know plays a huge yeah. part in setting yeah. the tone in the mood of the film and you know i just went ahead and did that and i tried to be just present you know in those scenes that i was doing that and not thinking about okay is my dp framing you know the shot right just like i wanted um them to and yeah i mean it really necessitated um genuine and deep trust between me and my dp um it felt like a real cinematographic collaboration <laughs> i love that i love that all right well listeners uh you have you have two missions you have two two sendaways from this episode number one is to go on netflix and watch lingua franca because it's a beautiful smart tender gorgeous guy. and it's also it's like what is it? 86 yeah. minutes? 80? Like, I can't. A very respectful length. Res respectful, respectful of length. the audience. Respectful <laughs> length. Like, the, the opposite of indulgent. Like, it's, it's, a, you can knock it out in an evening and it's a beautiful film. So go watch it because it's on Netflix. It's super easy to watch. Uh, number two, of course. Uh, you always talk about this like we have to go out on the sidewalk with a, you know, a tin cup and a, and a hat <laughs> turned upside down. Um, so I'll just I'll take it for this week, bro. I'll take it. I'll take the uh, I'll take one for the team this week. Much obliged. Rate and review the show. 
I'm glad you're enjoying it. It doesn't take very long. You just click the little stars. If you want to be like, ha, good show, whatever, then that's really all it takes. It, it seems like a pretty small ask. And uh, Isabel, how can people uh, follow you on social media and keep track of what you're up to? Um, I've kind of been on a Twitter sabbatical this past. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> that's you know, done wonders for my mental health, you know. Yeah, yeah. Newsflash. Um, but I might be back soon. I, I, I just uh, found my next feature project besides Tropical Gothic. Um, and I hope I'm very excited yeah. about that. And um, that probably explains my run of watching boxing movies like Ali, Fat City um, these past few days. And hopefully um, Good. I get to announce it very soon and shoot it this summer. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. All right. Well, they, and they can also follow you on Instagram. You're very good on Instagram. Yes. What is your What is your handle over there? Um, my Instagram handle is Isabel V Sandoval, and my stories are really just you know what I saw on Letterbox, you know, that I posted on Letterboxd for the there most. There are there are worse. What have we seen demonstrably worse ways to use social media than that? Uh, I, I'm occasionally on Twitter at Jason Dash Bailey. Uh, I'm trying to, to to be more fun and positive and logging movies also on uh, Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Mike, how can people follow you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And Mike, uh, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1974? Taking a Pelham 123, dude. I mean, it's like, it's... I I just I don't know. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite movies. Period. I, we can talk all day about what's a good movie and what's a bad movie or whatever the hell. But like as a movie, just to sit down and watch. It's also maybe the greatest soundtrack of all time. Whether or not it is for you, it is for me. Yeah, that's yeah. the kind of shit I like. That's what music sounds like in my head. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I think taking the original Taking Pelham One Two Three is one of my favorite movies to just watch of all time. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, whatever. It's not better than fucking Godfather. Yeah, I know. That's not the point. It's my favorite. What's Mike, your favorite? Mike, you can stop being defensive. My favorite movie of 1974 is The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. <laughs> I, lo- I, I like the fact that we usually are offering a contrast here, but come on, man. It's it's Walter Matthau in that coat and that tie uh, saying tight. Like, what the fuck else do you want? And that you're right. That David Shire score, Isabel, I, if nothing, I'm going to I'm gonna send you the MP3, the zip of the, the Taking a Pelham 123 score because it's the greatest writing music that's ever been composed. Like, in oh, my That shit makes you feel like a superhero. Yeah, like you're going to the grocery store to, like, feed <laughs> Einstein or so. It's a superhero music. Is this the one that got remade with Denzel, or was it? Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about the remake so much. Um, and there's that. So, thank you again, Isabel, and thank you for having me. It's been such a thrill. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason, and thank you for listening. It was a very good year.